Unlock the power of your mind. This is Provocative Enlightenment with Eldon Taylor. Well, welcome. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are in the world. We're glad you're joining us today. The next two hours are devoted to learning something more, not just about the world of shoes and ships and sealing wax, but about how, what, and why we believe as we do. A time for the open-minded, willing to challenge some of those old ideas behind what we think we know, who we are, and who we might just become. I'm Eldon Taylor, and this is Provocative Enlightenment. All right, our chat room is open, and my partner, Ravinder, and our chat room monitor, Andrea, await you there now. You can log on by going to provocativeenlightenment.com forward slash chat. We do have a terrific chat room with some wonderful folks that join us, so Ravinder, Tell us all about it, please. We have a lovely chat room, a great group of people, really exciting conversation, educational and fun at the same time. So do come join us. That's provocativeenlightenment.com forward slash chat. All right. In this week's spotlight, I'd like to draw your attention to the herd mentality. We are all herd animals, and we often behave accordingly without paying any attention to the provocation or stimuli provided by the herd's behavior. This is so hardwired into our very nature that a skilled manipulator can easily and surreptitiously take advantage of how we are wired. We can see this done with groups as well as with an individual. Interrogators will often use neuro-linguistic programming techniques to guide a subject into a confession. We all have mirror neurons, so mirroring a subject, matching their behavior, including their posture and mannerisms, and then beginning to pace them in order to establish rapport is not hard at all. As they become comfortable with you, they begin to trust you more and more, and of course the manipulator can take this trust in many directions. For example, the hypnotist may use it to guide you into hypnosis, the salesman to sell you a product, and the interrogator perhaps to obtain the truth. Indeed, in my new book, Gotcha, The Subordination of Free Will, you will find how this strategy can lead to wide-eyed entire group hypnosis. It's also not uncommon to find people lining up to buy the latest new this or that because everyone wants it. Marketers long ago learned how to take advantage of this aspect of our personalities. Again, as herd animals, we seek approval and status. People have been known to trample other people in order to get their possessions in what can best be described as a human stampede. The herd's pressure can be so powerful that we will often ignore our own senses to find agreement. There have been many replications of the famous line study where a subject is asked to judge the relative length of different lines placed in a group where everyone but the subject is in on the experiment the subject will correctly identify the longest line in the first couple of tries. However, as the rest of the group always chooses a shorter line than the longest, soon the subject literally ignores their own senses and ends up agreeing with the group. There are many other ways that we behave as herd animals, acting in reliance upon the herd, But to me, the most interesting area of this behavior arises when humans copy others in disastrous ways. Take, for instance, the death of Marilyn Monroe. Following her overdose of sleeping pills, the suicide rate increased 12% in our country alone. 
Joseph Hallinan, in his book, Kidding Ourselves, reviewed the data collected by Professor David Phillips, who reported 303 excess deaths due to copying Marilyn Monroe. When you begin to look into this sort of herd activity, you discover that it's not unheard of for people to die following the death of a loved one, or within a short time of hearing the news that they have cancer, or for that matter, as a result of suggestion, the so-called voodoo death. We also have the many instances of mass hysteria. One of the earliest reported examples of this occurred in Cambrai, France, where nuns threw fits, barked like dogs, and practiced a sort of mediumship, foretelling futures. One of the more interesting examples of this sort of herd hysteria occurred in Africa and Asia. According to Hallinan, hospitals in Singapore were flooded by frantic men, convinced their penises were shrinking. Further, mobs in Nigeria actually hung a dozen or more purported penis thieves. Now, that's serious. <laughs> even, if I, even if I find myself unable not to giggle a little bit when I read it. I have often shared stories of mass hysteria where an entire school or even a large portion of a city fall ill due to some unknown or suspected substance. And these illnesses are very real for both the patient and the health care provider. Real symptoms including such things as rashes, fevers, blisters, and the like. Our minds are very powerful and they can conjure up most anything if we just follow along with the herd. It is important that we recognize this potential in all of us in order to truly become aware. So once again, I want to encourage each and every one of you to be mindful, fully awake and alert, and to pay attention to what you're thinking and why. Your thoughts on this one, Ravinder? Oh, I think that's all, you know, really important stuff. Peer pressure isn't just something that happens to kids in school. It happens to all of us all the time, and the influence of those people around us can prevent us from thinking so I, I think it is important always to take a few moments and double check are you just agreeing to go along with the crowd have you done your homework are you allowing others to rile you up because as you said some pretty drastic things can happen when you just follow the crowd amen alright Every week, I read some of your letters as our way of involving you while paying respect to the very important role you play in making this show successful. Last week, our show featured Nancy Ellen Abrams, and we addressed her book, A God That Could Be Real. Shannon wrote, I enjoyed your show with Nancy, but I think she weighs the rational mind too heavily. There is value in faith alone. Richard wrote, Hard to argue against the notion of emergent properties. Thomas wrote, I enjoyed the idea of an emerging God, but the question then becomes, is God emerging from us, or are we emerging from God? Mark wrote, since Nancy Ellen Abrams presents her hypothesis about God from a secular perspective, I'll address her hypothesis from that same perspective, touching upon a philosophical point about identity. I believe that, as humans, each one of us wear many hats in life whether it be parent, student, teacher, lover, worker, friend, and so forth. We also 
can feel the sense of connection and oneness that participation in something larger than ourselves brings, such as friendship, group, society, humanity, history, and the cosmos. However, I believe that it is true that we have only one identity or nature, and our nature most essentially is that we are rational beings. From the standpoint of a human, when Nancy Abrams says that, we have multiple identities, is she saying that we have one identity but wear multiple hats? Or do we indeed have an individual identity as well as collective identities, coexisting in one form? According to the law of identity, an entity such as a human can only have one identity, not multiple coexisting identities, or no identity at all. Judy remarked, another awesome show. And moving on, Amos wrote, love your show and what a great variety of guests. You are providing a terrific service with your radio program. Keep it up. Karina wrote, you've probably heard this many times, but may I say what an amazing product your Intertalk CDs are. They've changed my life and brought forth what would have taken years, if not lifetimes. Thanks. Ravinder, you talk to people every day that are calling in and addressing, you know, their success, their stories about Intertalk. I, I read them because I'm not talking to them. But, you know, every time I hear one like this one, it, it, it is a warm, fuzzy feeling. What do you think? It's the best part of my job is hearing back from these people. And, you know, it can... The changes can seem small to other people, but it's like, what's important to you? Um, if you have a fear of something, fear of dentists, well, if you're not afraid of dentists, then someone getting over their fear of dentists isn't a big deal. But to that individual, it can be huge. Or if you have an esteem issue, you know, if you don't experience it yourself, it doesn't seem like something big. But to that individual... It's a major, major event. And so when I talk to these people on the phone, and they are just so happy about it, and it makes me feel good. It just makes you know, me feel good. When you say that, I'm reminded of you know, a note that I received a few weeks ago. Essentially, uh, it was a woman who had been on Bronson's airline. What was the name of his airline? Uh, Virgin. Virgin Airlines. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Been on Virgin Airlines. And... Uh, what she had done is listen to one of our programs on Virgin Airlines, and it had just assuaged all of her nerves and fear about flying. She uh-huh. just it, it was glorious in her words. Okay, but <clears throat> then she didn't think about using it for anything else for a couple of months. And then one day she got our catalog, and she looked at the because she'd requested. It, she looked at the catalog and thought, "Oh, you know, this will help my little girl." Stop bedwetting. Sometimes, and I mean, it seems to me quite often we hear things like, uh, you know, I used the program. It was really great. Uh, I loved the program. But then I forgot all about you. That was 10 years ago. And I should have because for 10 years I've dealt with this issue. How often do we hear that? We hear that a lot. But you know what? i got a confession for you right there, too. Okay. Because... As everyone knows, I'm an avid InnerTalk user. I use the programs all the time, but I too can forget. So um, I've been having problems sleeping recently, and uh, yeah, this morning it's like, why am I not playing our Sleep Soundy program? I've had so many good results with it. It it works like clockwork every single time, and 
But no, I just keep going night after night and tossing and turning. So I grabbed a brand new CD for me today. I have the perk working here. I have access to this fabulous <laughs> library. I just grab them whenever I like. All right, well, let's, let's move along quickly. That was a good confession, but I see we have our guest finally on the phone. So Karina wrote, no, I'm sorry, I got that one. Joanna wrote, I practice your self-hypnosis training nightly and found a remarkable change in my well-being. I'm listening to your attitude of gratitude, and I'm very aware of how well you grounded me when I was serious about getting my head around all of the things that befell me in this in the beginning of this year. I'm aware of how you changed my attitude. I was going to email you quite some time ago to tell you how you grounded and changed me. You are truly a blessing, Dr. Taylor. You have changed my life, and I have become a better person since I have followed your advice. All right. That's all the time we're going to take for letters today, but I do invite you to opine by sending your comments to Eldon. That's E-L-D-O-N at EldonTaylor.com or by joining me on Facebook. And I want to thank all of you for your letters and comments. We truly do appreciate your feedback and support. Now to this week's show, Silhouette of Virtue. Now, we've never before brought an author to the show whose book was fiction, but we have a rare case in today's guest. Silhouette of Virtue is based in part on actual crimes that occurred on a university campus during the mid-1970s and is also informed by experiences gained by the author while studying teaching African literature in West Africa later in the decade. As you might suspect, today's subject may be quite controversial since we will be dealing with racial issues as a part of our interview. We will endeavor to answer many racial questions, including such items as what does psychological research tell us about how Caucasian Americans truly view African Americans and how African Americans view themselves? We'll, uh, we'll take on a few other questions. There currently are a lot of talk out there about uh, the violence against African Americans and, you know, does the data truly support that? Are police, is the police use of force excessively aimed at black Americans? Well, we'll be discussing that as well. Okay, let me tell you a little about today's guest. Dr. Jay Richards is a forensic psychologist and expert witness with over 30 years of experience in diagnosing, managing, and studying psychopaths, sex offenders, and mentally disordered offenders. His fiction explores how people, normal and disordered alike, make choices in a world that is simultaneously predetermined and stultifying, unpredictable and dangerous. In the field of criminal psychology, he is known for groundbreaking research, innovative and provocative theoretical papers, and evocative and insightful case studies of psychopaths and other mentally disordered offenders. Dr. Richard's early clinical experience was gained during National Institute for Mental Health pre- and post-doctoral fellowships in clinical psychology at the Federal Psychiatric Hospital in Washington, D.C., that was then responsible for mentally ill persons determined to be dangerous to the president or other persons protected by the Secret Service. A decade later, he was retained as an expert by the U.S. Marshals, to review adequacy of treatment received by White House cases and the degree, degree of continuing risk for violence that would be posed if they were released from confinement. So on that, let's get him in here. Welcome to Provocative Enlightenment, Dr. Jay Richards. Hello. Hello. It's good to have you. We were a little nervous that we weren't going to 
actually be able to hook up with you. Well, I, I can say at least I observed the laws to be, to be able to call in, but a few minutes late, sir. Okay, we seem to have a bit of a bad connection there. Are you on a cell phone, sir? Yes, I am. You are. Do you have a landline nearby? Uh, no, I don't. Okay, well, we're going to do the best that we can. I've got a great producer, and she'll clean you up as best as possible. So before we get started into your work, there are three things that we like to get out of all of our guests. Who is the messenger? What is the message? And, of course, how do we use it? To that end, please tell us a little bit about you, your life as a young person. What did you want to be when you grew up? Did you plan on being a criminal psychologist and uh, immersing yourself in... uh, you know what you've spent a lifetime doing? Well, oddly enough, it's an interesting question. I, I originally wanted to be a chemist, and I went to college to be a chemist. I worked as a chemist in high school, a part-time job, you know, in the lab. We were doing food analysis and, you know, the stuff that, that ends up on your nutritional label. We were doing that. Um, but then I, when I went to college, I found that uh, the chemistry courses, really didn't engage me, and I started feeling like my attraction to chemistry was to help people uh, with their lives, so, um, and I didn't think it would do that. So I, uh, I was more and more interested in literature. I've always wanted to write fiction, uh, and so I started uh, majoring in literature, and my teachers were telling me, you know, you really write more like a psychologist. Your thinking is more like that. Um, and they sort of guided me towards psychology, uh, where, as I started being involved in psychology, the psychology professors were saying, well, you know, you, you sort of think in this literary philosophical way, not really, not really mm-hmm. scientific psychology. Um, so I sort of hung in there with psychology all along, and, and I, I still keep my foot in this world of uh, fiction and philosophy as I practice uh, psychology, because I, I do think they're, they're highly related and inform yeah. each other very well. I don't do much chemistry of any kind. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so uh, at what point, I mean, did you decide criminal psychology was going to be your bag? Well, actually, I think it's being um, living in neighborhoods where there were a lot of people going to prison and, and jail and then uh, visiting people in prison. And, and uh, then I volunteered during college to go to uh the reformatory for boys in Illinois, and uh, so I spent, you know, quite a few, few evenings there, you know, uh, as a sort of a lay counselor as I was doing my undergraduate study, mm-hmm. and so I got more and more engaged with, with people who were boys, in this case, who were having these extreme problems in life uh, related to crime, and then as I... Um, uh, was more and more involved in psychiatric hospitals, I found that the most interesting cases were the forensic cases. I got more engaged in those, primarily because of the uh, an interest in personality disorder, which is very, uh, you know, prominent aspect of repeat criminality often, and especially with forensic cases where there's been a violent event of some kind. Right. I have to... To add, you know, your uh, your love for literature and, of course, your experience in criminal psychology come together very well in your book, Silhouette of Virtue. That's a very well-written, very, very involving book. It's one of those that you can't really put down. I enjoyed it very much. But 
Your book has the protagonist dealing with a spiritual crisis. So my next question, were you raised with a religion? And if so, you know, what faith? And tell us how that impacted your life. Well, I was raised vaguely Christian. My, my mother was raised, there was a foster town. She was, she was raised in a very Christian, uh, African Methodist Episcopal uh, home. But uh, by the time I came around in my youth, uh, we were very loosely involved. So we only went to church when I went to uh, stay with my grandmother in southern Illinois, which is where this, this, this book is uh, set. Um, and my father, for example, would tell us that, you know, Jesus and Satan were brothers and all a family issue. We should stay out of it. It wasn't our business. <laughs> and so he, he, he preached sort of like that we should be involved, we should be, uh, have a, a morality based on the golden rule, but all these theological things sort of beyond human beings. And uh, so that was really sort of my background of, of having just sort of a general awareness of religion, but not really immersed in it. But I have to say my my uh, grandmother, actually foster grandmother, uh, was a um, clairvoyant, uh, and she would do spiritual readings for people. She would have uh, uh, channeling of of people who had passed away, uh, to the point where oftentimes people would demand to see her, like on you know Sunday, and she would refuse to see anybody on Sunday. Uh, but she she was really in high demand for those kind of things. And so in that household, there was a uh, my grandmother's household. There was a strong religious belief, but also these sort of uh, spiritualist beliefs uh, about contact with the dead, uh, uh, people with who have special powers uh, to know the future and to know people's destiny. So I have to say that that, that was uh, part of my life as well. And then as a teenager, uh, my brother became involved in a Pentecostal uh, church, and I actually went through a religious conversion as a late teen uh, to Pentecostalism. Uh, so I got went from having essentially no religious background to being super immersed in it and, you know, wanting to and being sort of groomed for uh, the ministry. Um, so I've had quite a, uh, you know, a, a sort of roller coaster in regards to formal religion. And But I think that the underlying themes of interest in spirituality and, and spiritual growth have remained pretty constant. Just I've had various ways that I expressed it um, or that I pursued it. I, I have to say that I'm very much a theist. I have a hard time understanding people who aren't, and I, I acknowledge that I have a hard time. You know, some theists don't, they think they understand people who don't believe, but I think it's a, it's a very different world they live in, mm-hmm. um, and I acknowledge that. But it's just sort of, for me, I don't I don't see how uh, the world works without a, a some sort of greater, higher being or um, force, awareness, whatever one might conceptualize it. However it's conceptualized, it's going to be beyond our concept, that's for sure. Um, and agnosticism, I, I could see where someone would, would take that as an intellectual position, but it doesn't seem to me as a heartfelt position, a heartfelt position toward the universe. You know, we've got a break coming up in about 40 seconds, so when we come back, I'm going to ask you how your spiritual life is impacted by 
Yeah, I practice criminalistics with my degree, and so to me, there's a real gutter life there, and I know you know what I'm talking about, so I'm going to ask you how your spiritual life guides you through dealing with some of the the things that you have to deal with. We're speaking with Dr. Jay Richards about his life, work, and research, and most recent book, Silhouette of Virtue. It's a great read. Um, you'd enjoy it. I recommend it strongly. To learn more about Dr. Richards, visit his website at jrichardsbooks.com. Be sure to get the books on there. It's jrichardsbooks.com. Okay, remember to join Ravinder and Andrea in the chat room. You can do that by going to provocativeenlightenment.com forward slash chat. Do stay tuned. We'll be right back. You're listening to Provocative Enlightenment with Elton Taylor. A silent battle has been raging for the territory of your mind. Like a virulent virus, the effects are spreading. In Gotcha, Eldon Taylor explores the 24-7 bombardment of information designed to manage your thinking. He demonstrates how new sound bites are championed into personal awareness, becoming memes of the culture. And this results in framing and reframing classical positions, causing adjustments to personal values and history itself. Your every decision process is being managed and manipulated. Gotcha exposes the arrival of the Orwellian age in full-blown technicolor. In laying bare the current uses of the many sophisticated techniques, Eldon reveals what it is we need to do in order to avoid allowing others to puppet our thoughts. For details, go to eldentaylor.com backslash gotcha. Unlock the power of your mind. This is Provocative Enlightenment with Eldon Taylor. Está mal sumergirme otra vez 
ni temer que el río sangre y calme se bucea And welcome back. If you've just joined us, we're chatting with Dr. Jay Richards about his life, work, research, and most recent book, Silhouette of Virtue. Now, we ask our guests for three pieces of music, three of their favorites, music that has some genuine significance to them. Music is more important to us than many recognize. Music can awaken forgotten memories and is even restored lost states of consciousness. Indeed, music psychology is a field of research with practical relevance for many areas, including investigations of human aptitude, skill, intelligence, creativity, personality, and social behavior. So, we just played some of, and I don't speak Espanol very well, so I'll give it to you in English, Area of Promises. So please tell us, Dr. Richards, why is this music important to you, and how does it instruct us about who you are? Well, it's a, it's beautiful music. That's probably the first thing, the human voice. Uh, it's important to me, too, to have connections with other languages. I'm, I'm an English speaker. I don't speak Spanish, but I've studied Spanish and studied Spanish literature and poetry, so that's a meaning, too. But I think the song, it, it, it's a scenario of a man who's returning from a battle, a war, to his lover, uh, spouse, or uh, some other important relationship. And it's their exchange of promises uh, of, of understanding and acceptance and love when they, when they actually meet. And, and, and so the, the chorus there is, is I'm slow to return, but there will be um, a uh, reward. There will be a reward of reading. So the song is really about uh, plunging into love after this battle. And, of course, it's a metaphor, the battle of, of life and the spiritual battle uh, and the comfort that we can offer each other in it through just presence and being love, commitment, and care. So it's, it's uh, um, I think it sort of brings in that whole aspect of the, the spiritual aspect of erotic love, um, and how that pulls together so much of our life. You know, it's not everything in our life, but it certainly pulls together a lot of things uh, in our in our existence. It's indeed beautiful music. I've, I was unfamiliar with it, but it is now in my catalog, on my playlist. Before the break, I suggested to you that I was going to ask you about your spiritual life and how you integrated it in dealing with the... Uh, you know, the kinds of things that you have to deal with as a criminal psychologist, uh, the sort of crimes, etc. Indeed, uh, your book begins, um, the scene in your book, uh, uh, well, I, I don't want to give any of the book away. Uh, you know what I'm referring to when I talk about despicable behavior. How do you integrate it? Well, you know, oftentimes, I think I know the scene you're talking about, and oftentimes people ask me, you know, is it really that bad? And I, I assure them that I've actually toned down that scene from some of the crimes that yeah. that go into these things. And I I think that one thing about a spiritual orientation of faith that can help me in this work is that I, I believe that human beings are just inherently 
deep, uh, complex, and connected. So I, I come to that, to every case with that belief. And that's the faith, really, because sometimes I'm dealing with people who seem so disturbed, either because of brain damage, psychotic disorders, or severe sadism or psychopathy, you know, extreme sexual psychopaths, that it sort of strains that belief that we're all underlying in some way, we're all one in some way, and that we're all connected. But uh, that is a faith that I bring to my work. And I also bring a, a faith that because of that, if we deeply understand someone, try to deeply understand them, that that's going to make a shift in that person and in, and in the situation. So I don't see my investigations uh, with much more assessment than treatment, but I don't see my investigations as neutral in the world because they change things. Uh, I often work with uh, trying to assess sexually violent predators who have potential of being locked up the rest of their life is the way they see it, death sentence to a, or life sentence to an to a institution. Mm-hmm. And yet they often, at the end of the interview, say, I feel, I feel understood more than ever in, in a certain way. You know, they're not expressing that, that they totally trust me or that, they, you know, that, that there's been a breakthrough other than a sense of being understood. And I think coming with this, this spiritual orientation, it's essentially humanistic, but it's grounded in a, in a humanism that says we're in contact with uh, the universe as a whole. We're not alone uh, in this universe, and it, it's not a incoherent universe we're in. And I think that allows me to do my work with uh, a sense of confidence and faith that it makes a difference. Let me ask you this question, because I did some counseling myself at the Utah State Prison, and, uh, you know, I don't. you indicated earlier that you did some um, pre-graduate work uh, at a juvenile facility. Do you continue to do any counseling uh, whatsoever? And if you do, are you called upon to reach for that spiritual element in order to make sense of some things with the people you address over the last uh, decade, I've, I've mainly taken on therapy cases uh, that were referred by other professionals because they thought I would be particularly useful to the person. Mm-hmm. And they're often people with severe mental illness. Um, occasionally, it's been someone who was in fairly high functioning, but through going through some personal crisis that, that could be resolved pretty quickly. Uh, but I've worked with people where some of their basic issues had to do with uh, spirituality uh, and the conflict between their spirituality and, and the faith in which they were raised. Um, I worked for several years with uh, a woman who was raised in a very strong uh, religious group that some people call, would call it cult. And she had to come to terms with uh, sexual abuse, financial exploitation that she had been exposed to from childhood in parallel with feeling that that uh, religious system and people involved in it had brought her to some sort of understanding uh, of God and, and some relationship with God that helped her judge their acts. In other words, they had helped her bring bring her to the point 
point where she could see their acts as being wrong, being uh, separate from what they were preaching. Um, so that's certainly a case but, uh, that's very specifically involved. But I think with most people, um, I think the things that psychologists um, are sometimes hesitant to assess are people's sexuality and their spirituality. But those, those are often the last questions that, that, that we get around to, hoping that we can avoid getting right. into those issues. And, and I think that's a mistake. I agree. So totally. Uh, your bio informs us that you're qualified as an expert witness, and obviously you are, so that's kind of a silly setup. But from your courtroom experience, I have a, a, a question. What value do you assign you know, to the testimony of an eyewitness? Well, I, uh, I think that, that, that it's the credibility that they, uh, they're, they're giving you a sense of their belief and their degrees of confidence. They're telling you how, what they believe and how confident they are. But, of course, the studies on eyewitness testimony say, say that it's be fallible, you know, that, that there are many things that can go wrong with people's eyewitness testimony, especially when you look at the data, for example, that shows that um, white people are very poor at distinguishing African-American faces right. from each other. So they're likely to see uh, many African-American faces as overly similar or even confuse those faces in some sort of identification situation. Um, that's true for African-Americans as well, but not as much. Um, and, and that's an interesting dynamic, too, why, why these racial things are not really symmetrical in a society like, like ours. Uh, but that's just one example. Um, there's... You know, the classical examples are that you have a, someone come on to a basketball uh, um, uh, game and mm-hmm. on the court with a gorilla suit, and later on, most of the people never saw that, that person. <laughs> right. They just saw a bunch of bodies moving around trying to play the game. They weren't attuned to something unusual. No one ever passed in the ball. <laughs> so, so he goes unseen, and, and yet... You know, a, a true camera-like eyewitness would pick that up. Yeah, uh, I and think. I, I, Go I ahead. think this idea that the that the witness is like a camera is, um, you know, it's, it's just not true. But it, it also is very modern. You know, the camera hasn't existed forever, and people, I think, in other centuries knew that you were witnessing with your heart and your mind and your soul, and not just with your eyes. And in fact, if you saw the wrong thing or failed to, they would blame you. You know, like it, it's your responsibility to get it right. You know, it's a spiritual responsibility to perceive things correctly, and that's just not a visual sensory thing. Let's uh, let me ask you this: Your book builds upon race relations, and you anticipated rightly why I was asking the question about courtroom testimony, the difference, the asymmetrical uh, aspect of identification between races. Why did you decide to write a book that built upon race relation itself, As especially at this time when, or, or was that just coincidence that we would have such a hot ball on our hand at the time your book is released? Well, I, I think that uh, from my perspective, there's always a a hot issue around race in the United States. I mean, there, there are various times when it seems to, you know, subside a bit. But it, it is 
one of the great issues in the United States. Uh, and uh, W.B. Du Bois said back in the, you know, the 1890s that the, uh, the, the next century would be about race. And it, it, it's, it's not as clear that he would be able to apply that to this new century, but it's not over. It's still a major thing to deal with. Um, separately, I say that I would, uh, it's in the book because it was part of those original crimes that happened at that college campus where people were polarized because a young black man was accused of rapes. And some people saw this, that it must be due to prejudice. And other people said, wait a second, you know, he's, because he's black doesn't mean he can't, you know, commit crimes and, and, and the police are using some evidence to go by. Uh, and then a third reason is that as, as African Americans, it's a, it's, race has been a critical part of my life, you know, every aspect of my life through my entire existence, and maybe more so because I'm one of these individuals who's very uh, light-skinned, uh, many Caucasian-like features, so I'm often uh, mistaken to be a white person, um, not so much by African-Americans. They, they rarely make that mistake, but many times white people do. Um, and so I hear things that otherwise blacks might not hear. Um, and I, I, I hear maybe attitudes from whites that otherwise people might not hear. Uh, so it's been a, uh, something I've been very aware and attuned to. And that I think there needs to be more, just more dialogue about, more conversation about. All right. Let's, let's look at some, you know, aspects of the racial issue. What does the psychological research tell us about how Caucasian Americans view African Americans and how African Americans view themselves? Well, there's been a development in psychology, especially over the last 25 years, where when we look at people's attitudes and beliefs, we have to look at them now on two in two ways or two different levels. One is the level of their overt statements what people will tell you they believe or that they uh, like uh, or that they prefer. And another level is a covert level. It's called an implicit level. It's at the level of behavior, and it's, it's unconscious. And this really corresponds to two levels of mind. One level of mind, we're consciously aware, we're making decisions, we're pulling up our history and memories and uh, influences and advice from other people. But underneath that is a, is a constantly moving stream of processing information that's automatic and, and is built on uh, life experiences. It's built on our early teachings. And based on that, what, what has happened over the last 50 years, certainly, is that white Americans see African Americans much more positively. They don't believe in prejudice anymore. They don't want to be discriminatory. They see that as something that's uh, related to lower character and immaturity, uh, which that wasn't the case in the 1920s. So, you know, very mature uh, people, uh, upstanding people, were very racist in their orientation. I still watch movies, and one guy will say to another, "Oh, that's, that's you're talking mighty white. You're you're really being white now." Meaning, this is good. You know, what you're doing is is honorable. Uh, people don't. I don't think they use that very often. But in the in the 20s, 30s, 40s, that wasn't unusual. But on another level, things haven't changed. So there's a, uh, a, a technology developed where we can measure people's attitudes by how long it takes them to do to make various associations. For example, 
we know, and, and this will make sense to people, that it's easier to associate spiders with negative things than it is to associate flowers with negative things. So if you have a list of words and you have to make a choice, every time you see a word, you have to pair it with, if it's a positive word, you pair it with flowers. Uh, and if it's a negative word, you pair it with um, spiders. You'll do that task very quickly. But if you're told to reverse it, every time you see a positive word, you should pair it with the spiders. What we find, uh, and every time you see a negative word, you pair it with the flowers. Uh, we find in that sort of decision-making task, um, that really slows people down when they reverse that because they inherently, most people prefer flowers to spiders. They, and they, they automatically associate spiders with negative things and flowers with positive things. Um, when you do that with black and white faces, you ask people to pair negative words with black faces and positive words to white faces. Most Americans do that task very quickly. When you tell them to reverse it, to pair negative words with white faces and positive words with black faces, uh, they slow down. And the way psychologists interpret that slowing is it's now taking much more effort. You're working against some basic structure of your mind that automatically associates the black faces with negative things. Right. Uh, and the interesting thing about that, about 85% of white Americans automatically prefer white, which, of course, is illegal if you're hiring people and you, you hire based on we just feel good about. Um, that would be actually against the law to hire on that basis. But we know that 85% automatically like the, the, the white faces and dislike the black faces or don't prefer them. And among African-Americans, about 35% of African-Americans also prefer the white white faces over black faces. About uh, another 30% uh, of African-Americans prefer their own race. Um, and then that small, there's a small percent, larger in, among African-Americans than in white, who really don't, don't have much of a a difference in their preference. They, they sort of don't respond very much automatically to, to a person's uh, racial features. Um, but that's certainly the minority in both African-Americans and um, white Americans. Um, so when you look at this, that's just on the level of preference. But when you have uh, asked people to associate weapons, various kinds of weapons, with either black faces or white faces, they automatically associate much more uh, than otherwise the weapons or violence with the black faces um and if anybody looks at the history of colonialization or slavery jim crow any of these other things you would say well they're certainly not an underrepresentation of whites and violence but the, based on our culture the um the black faces are those associated with negative things with pain with disease uh, with violence and with bad things generally. And this this is a, a huge thing to try to overcome. Tony Greenwald uh, has uh, written a book called Blind Spots, the, uh, un, uh, the Hidden Biases of Good People. Right. Uh, Greenwald is saying, you know, even people who want to be fair, want to be non-discriminatory, uh, see it as beneath them to be automatically prejudicial, 
still hold these prejudices. And Greenwald was one of the first people to, he actually invented this technology, and he took the test himself And uh, early on, and he found out that he preferred white. And he said, well, I'll just keep practicing, and eventually I'll, I'll be scoring the white and black faces about the same, mm-hmm. the same speed uh, with negative or positive things. And he found out that, although it is here 25 years later, he gets the same result 25 years later, he still has a strong preference for white faces. And th- does that mean he's, he's discriminatory or he's racist? And I would say no, because I think Dr. Greenwell is aware that when he's making decisions that involve African-Americans, he has to take his automatic biases into account and ask the question simply, are my biases involved? How can I get more data to make sure that they're not involved? Um, instead of making the, uh, the assumption that most Americans make, is that, of course, their biases have nothing to do with day-to-day interactions. You know, for our listening audience out there, um, you can all participate in this Im- implicit bias test. It's online. And uh, just, you know, Google implicit bias test, and you'll be able to... Uh, for yourself, measure and experience some of what uh, our guest has just discussed. You went very quickly over something, and I've only got about a minute here, so I I wanted to clarify. When it came to weapons, you described white people as placing the weapon naturally uh, with the African-American. How about the African-American? Where did they place the weapon naturally? There's a lar- There is a smaller percent of African-Americans who also associate other African-Americans with weapons. It's not as strong an effect, but it's just like the facial preference. There is a you know, considerable minority of African-Americans who prefer white uh, faces, and there's a considerable minority of African-Americans who associate African-American faces with weapons or violence. Um, so these beliefs, uh, automatic beliefs, um, um, affect everyone to a certain extent, although some people seem to not hold these these prejudices, um, but certainly just knowing someone's uh, ethnic or racial background doesn't tell you which camp they're in, you know, whether they prefer their own group strongly or they don't have much of a bias either way. Right, well, I find that very interesting. We have a hard break coming up. I don't want to get kicked out by the computer, so uh, when we come back, we'll pick this up with our guest, Dr. Jay Richards. If you'd like to know more about Dr. Jay Richards and his new book, Silhouette of Virtue, visit his website at jrichardsbooks.com. Now, we have a video for you during the break featuring the problem with eyewitness testimony. You can view it by joining the chat room. Just go to provocativeenlightenment.com forward slash chat. We'll be right back. You're listening to Provocative Enlightenment with Elton Taylor. Do you feel like you've become lost in the funhouse, only seeing the reflection of yourself, past, future, and present, but unable to find the real you? I invite you to step through the doorway and onto a pathway leading to understanding of your mind, your choices, and the influences that surround you. Read Eldon Taylor's New York Times best-selling book, Choices and Illusions. Now expanded, updated, and revised, it will provide you with real-life examples of how you can break free of your current perceptions and begin your journey to 
How High Is Up. Get your copy today from all bookstores or online from Amazon.com or Barnes & Noble. Unlock the power of your mind. This is Provocative Enlightenment with Eldon Taylor. And welcome back. We have a little bit of a change-up today to our regular programming because I I have a really wonderful producer. Her name is Barb Perry, and I've just thoroughly loved working with Barb. She has just been absolutely fantastic, and unfortunately, she has found herself heaven somewhere else. So she is leaving CTR. Today is her last day, and I cannot let her go without publicly thanking her for being just a spectacular person she is and always being there when I needed her. Don't you think, Rev? I definitely do. It's unfortunate for her, for us, but it sounds absolutely fabulous for Bob. So I wish you all the best, Bob. Have a wonderful, wonderful career and stay in touch, please. For sure. Happy trails, lovely lady. Happy trails. Let's get a bumper in here now. If you're just joining us, we're speaking with Dr. Jay Richards about his life, work, research, and new book, Silhouette of Virtue. Now, Dr. Richards, we just played your second musical choice, Who by Fire, by Leonard Cohen. So please tell us, what's the story with this one? Oh, well, you know, I think Leonard Cohen is a great poet, singer, uh, and, and has sort of kept a, a spiritual flame going, uh, you know, throughout his career, being a Zen Buddhist monk, or he actually dropped out of things to being a uh, Christian convert from Judaism uh, to being a man of the world and returning to, to Judaism in his music, at least. Uh, but this song is, is about death, and, and it catalog, catalogs the many means of death. That uh, and it, it, I see it as sort of has a scenario like people are entering the next world and. And death is saying, who shall I say is calling? Who is coming in? 
and how they died. And I think it points out the, the, the universal aspect of death and the uniqueness of humanity. Um, uh, one thing that is addressed in Silhouette of Virtue is some ideas by a thinker called Ernest Becker, who says that this awareness of death is such a unique aspect of humanity, and we don't appreciate how much it affects our every uh, waking moment, how it affects our, de- our decisions and the way we think. And in particular, it affects them by increasing uh, our uh, biases and prejudices against people who aren't like us, for whatever reason. So I think, I think uh, just Richard, uh, Leonard Cohen, uh, wanting to bring back this medieval kind of sound to, remember, to remind us that however modern we are, and he refers to modern things like dying of, of uh, powder, it was probably cocaine, that uh, many modern references in this medieval song, he's saying, you know, this is a universal human experience that, that is still with us. Yeah, you know, I, I've often wondered just how many people really pay attention to death until it gets a little closer to knocking on their door. And the story of Ivan Illich uh, kind of stands in my mind there. I think a lot of folks just, uh, they fail to appreciate the beauty of their life because they they have turned uh, shutters off to the reality of their mortality. Uh, but that's an it, 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 interesting take on that song. Listen, I, I have to ask you something, because again, we're in this political environment. And when you look at the demographic, we find that more than 90% of uh, African Americans uh, are, are aligned with uh, a given party, a political party, the Democratic Party. Uh, what, what underlies that, in your opinion? Well, I think that they that African Americans have not been given a realistic you want to flesh that out at all that might gain some support from black um, either have no power or no uh, no realistic ability to run the country or a state uh, or or even a county um, or uh, the Republican party. Uh, has bargained that they rarely need black votes and that their constituency um, is does not have the same interests as African Americans. Um, maybe they're trying to change that. I think that the, there's an attempt to change the imagery of that, but I think we're still in a situation now where um, the Democrats, for the most part, assume that African Americans have nowhere else to go realistically with a vote that will have some influence. And I think the Republicans overall would say, well, we might convince a few of them to vote our way, but the more we get, the more likely is we're going to alienate some of our, our basic constituents. And I think that's, that is the politics. The politics reflects a racial divide. And in fact, this big immigration of uh, white males in particular to the Republican Party happened immediately after Johnson's uh, aggressively desegregated the Southern school. Mm-hmm. And it was very, very much a uh, reactionary uh, effort to punish the Democratic Party for what they, what they had done. Interesting. All right. The prevailing belief among conservatives of all ethnicity is that racial prejudices 
no longer much of a practical significance in America. I don't. Is that truly the prevailing belief? Is that supported by current research? Well, I tell, it's only true if you never have to apply for a job, you never have to go to a courtroom, you never have to be stopped by the police, you never have to buy a, a car or, or a home uh, or go grocery shopping for fresh produce in your neighborhood. Uh, if you have to do any of those things, race is very, very important. And in fact, I would say that not only are most African Americans very much affected by race, but most whites in the United States live their lives conditioned by race. And uh, it sounds like a preposterous statement, but um, most people, well, most whites choose where to live based on race. They choose where to send their children to school. They choose where to worship. They choose where to get their hair cut. Um, all these choices are conditioned by their race. For whites, they see those those uh, options or those parameters as working to their benefit, and for the most part, they really do work to their benefit, uh, and to the point where it's invisible to whites. It's just, of course, someone would prefer this neighborhood, a good neighborhood. Uh, I lived in Washington, D.C. for a while, and people were uh, recognizing what was a good neighborhood meant that, that there were relatively few African Americans were some of the established neighborhoods in Washington, D.C., uh, with beautiful uh, 19th century homes were, you know, fairly high percent African-Americans, but they, it was still not a good neighborhood. Um, so I think that that's just wrong. It's not true. It's maybe you wish, but I think it's more of a blind, it's more of a denial. It's more of an idea that we can pretend that we're colorblind. And by pretending that, we can pretend we're being just. Hmm. And and I think that that's just not true. We do pay attention to race, at least with our behavior. You know, maybe we don't, you know, you know say bad things about people who are different from us. Maybe we won't consciously make a decision to work against them. But I think almost all the scientific evidence, sociological and psychological, show that whites prefer whites. They give advantages to whites and that these things work against the interests of, in particular, African-Americans, more than any other minority. Uh, uh, and that, that has to do with the dynamics of racism. I must have somehow missed out on some of this. I, I, I sold my first home to Sonny Liston's boy. My wife is certainly not white. Uh, what's a gig with produce? I've never heard that. What's a, what do you mean? You, you're... <laughs> In most African-American neighborhoods, exclusively African-American neighborhoods are largely, you can't find fresh produce in the, in the grocery stores. They get sort of uh, garbage vegetables, or you can't find them at all. They get, it's the fast food. It's the you know high sodium content. And it, it does sound like to me that you missed out on one. In other words, you're, you're in a different stream than, than most white people, and, and uh, any generalization that I would make about white people or African Americans or whatever, of course, there are many people who don't follow that and, and you know, are living a different kind of um, uh, life story. Uh, and, and that's great that, 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 that these generalizations just don't hold, you know, yeah. water for every case. 
I made a mistake. I said Sonny Liston, but it was Sonny Liston's trainer's son that bought that home. All right, let's do, do Asians, Hispanics, and, and, and uh, others face the same kind of disadvantages, uh, racial prejudices that you've been describing to us, uh, Doctor? I, I don't think they do. I, th- I think that Hispanics often on do Asians have at various times, but not not very much currently. I think that they may experience some um, interpersonal uh, awkwardness around race at times, but not so much the workplace discrimination uh, to the same extent. You know, I think they do experience it because I think the way racism works now is whites preferring whites um, and, and not actively discriminating against other people. But if you prefer, uh, you know, if the system prefers white people for hiring for advancements, uh, you know, for loans, for uh, pricing, for cars or homes. Uh, eventually, you're going to see the white people have all the advantages, and, and, that, and that'll be true compared to, to Asians and uh, Hispanics and other groups. But you do have the phenomenon of people coming to the United States. One of the first things about Americanization used to be learning English, and it still is. But learning race is also very early in the process of being an American and learning how far you can get away from black. So the farther you can get away from black, the more white you are. So we see, for example, that the that, that our um, West Asian uh, immigrants, the uh, people from India, from Pakistan, um, they're um, very attuned to um, not being closely associated with black and being very associated with white. That tends to be true of Asians, not equally true of all Asian groups. But I, I think it's part of their culturation now, and it starts before they get here uh, through uh, the media, through news, through movies. Um, that, for example, uh, it was now a decade ago, but a, 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 I think it was a prime minister of Japan uh, said that... Uh, you know, having a a, a a nuclear facility in your town was like having black people move next next door. It was like having wow. prostitutes and uh, criminals uh, all moving next door. And how he openly. Ago, how long ago was that statement made? About a decade. Wow. I'm sorry. Go on. I just. Well, okay. you wouldn't be the. Uh, we have some politicians now who say things that. <laughs> Are pretty outrageous, but I don't think he was representing. He was representing Japan, but I think he was consciously making a policy statement. But I do think because of film, um, because of uh, the news, um, we're still going to have a, a new TV series about uh, OJ is going to come out to bring up this example of the black guy who you thought was um, exemplary and positive uh, underneath it all. He really is a killer, a murderer, and the black jury, partially black jury, was too dumb or too prejudiced to convict him. Um, whereas most Americans have pretty much forgotten that there was a lot of evidence that the basic physical evidence in the case was contaminated. It attempt to frame him, and I'm one of these people who think, oh yeah, he had something to do with it. I also feel like, how can you overlook the way this case was handled? The, the way the evidence was handled, the way the the information about the case rolled out, 
But I don't. Of course, I don't want to debate it. What I'm bringing up really is why are we talking about O.J. Simpson now? Why is it going to be a new um, uh, TV series about him? And I think the thing is that he represents this uh, deep belief of whites that the blacks around them, however exemplary they are, that there's a uh, there's something wrong. There's something that's not quite right, and you won't know what it is until you discover it. And they kill you know, their wife or they rob a bank or they do some sort of political, uh, you know, corruption. Uh, and, you know, this sounds very cynical, but I, I think that the um, addressing these underlying things is the only way we get to understanding things like police shooting blacks. Um, it's, it's the only way to make sense out of it because the police are not doing something unusual. They're just implementing a system, a system that says black people, and particularly black men, are dangerous and their lives aren't very valuable. Okay, um, let's, we'll talk about that in just a second. I certainly don't want to let that go because I spent years myself in law enforcement, but let's stay on the movies for a minute. I, I mean, I've done a lot of research on that, and there is no doubt but what Hollywood does not very often aim to sell the hearts and minds. And and when I say Hollywood, well, you know, Hollywood is not a block. So, you know, sometimes we'll get um, an agenda that is aimed maybe, as you say, at portraying um, African-Americans in a bad light. And and maybe then we'll get something that is is aimed at portraying, you know, white cops in a bad light. Um, I know West Wing was something everybody debated for a good long time, but the data is out now. We know that this was indeed largely written and, and profiled uh, uh, about President Obama and a Democratic White House and what the agenda was. It was to sell a Democratic agenda. So, you know, Second World War, there were... 30 full-length motion pictures made to sell, you know, America on the the war. So I I totally concur about the use of the media. I was not aware of the O.J. Simpson um, film that you're discussing coming out. And I'm in your camp. I don't understand what good that could possibly do uh, for our our culture, our society. but I also remember seeing several motion pictures where the President of the United States was an African-American, and, and that kind of fostered uh, among everyone that I'm familiar with the idea that wouldn't it be great if we could just elect an African-American, because wouldn't that end the whole racial thing? And, you know, I'm old enough to go back to... When, you know, we had Governor Wallace embarrassing every Caucasian person on the planet, um, at least in my view. So, so I guess what I'm getting to now is the question. I hear lately a lot of rhetoric about we have a African-American president who himself seems to be biased, implicitly perhaps, but nevertheless biased. He contacts... Uh, a family, uh, an African-American family who's lost their son in what many consider to be a justified shooting, but he never contacts that white law enforcement officer. Now, I'll remove the word never because he just did that uh, day before yesterday. 
Is there any truth to the idea that here we've elected a uh, African American president and racism is worse today than it was before his election? I think there's something to it. I think it's um, wrong, really wrong-headed on one important level or several important levels, and right in other ways. I, I think, for example, um, we're not living with officially segregated schools, but the schools are more segregated than they have been in 25 years. But they're not being done so under the, the law. Um, we're not living in a situation where certain unions will not take black. My father would, was never accepted in the Carpenter's Union. They wouldn't take black no. uh, in the time when he was trying to enter that. So we're not living under that sort of uh, de jure uh, uh, segregation. And, and we have a lot of uh, involvement of African-Americans and everybody else in the society. It's, it's so much improved in that regard. But in many important ways, it, we still have a culture and a society that is geared to maintain a racial caste system with whites at the top, blacks at the bottom, and everybody else sort of fills in. Of course, if you're black and you make enough money, uh, find a way to, to, to get that money. You move up a little bit. Um, but Henry Louis Gates, you know, a, a Harvard professor, finds that when he comes to his own home uh, to, to uh, get in after not having the keys, uh, uh, a white cop stops him, makes him lay down on the ground, uh, refuses to uh, look at his uh, identification, showing that he owns a home, that's his house. Um, so a black person can be brought to the lowest level at any time because that's the system of... Uh, Is of that what happened to... with a Harvard professor? My understanding was he didn't have any ID on him, and that's what forced the encounter and that's why President Obama brought them both over to you know enjoy sip a bend an elbow together that's what I'll say well I, I don't understand the facts that way um, I can oh, tell okay. you a case that happened in Montgomery County with a friend of mine who's a, a black psychiatrist uh -huh. uh, right outside of DC in Bethesda owned multi-million dollar home I, at that time million and a half dollars driving a, uh, a Porsche pulled over at 11 o'clock at night told to lay down in the mud in, in, oh. in, in, in March and uh, had his ID. The ID showed he owned the car. He had the registration. It showed his home was only blocks away. He was told that he resembled someone who was invading the homes. And I don't know if, you know, home invaders usually use a Porsche uh, or that they, <laughs> no. they rob places that are no, right next no, to their ridiculous. home. No, that's ridiculous. Yeah, and no. the Montgomery County Police found that to be a legitimate stop, a legitimate restraint, a legitimate arrest. Um, it was dumbfounding to me that that could be the case that this esteemed black psychiatrist in his 80s would be put through this. And I can say this because my father was put through. The only time I've seen my father cry was coming home from having a police officer pull him over and call him a nigger and tell him that you know that what was and I say to him, "What are you going to do about it?" And my father said, "If I did anything about it, I'm going to end up in prison or dead, and he's going to end up feeling that he has mastered the situation." So he had to deal with that frustration and humiliation. And I, imagine having to tell you know your listeners have your your listeners imagine having to tell your son or daughter that story. No, 
No, and this is no, a story that almost no, every... and and that's a wound that would go deep, and it would it would be a long-lasting wound. I, I guess I was fortunate. I I spent years in law enforcement, and, and I can honestly tell you, I don't know, or I am totally unaware of any of them behaving it, it remotely like what you're talking about, or for that matter. I mean, you know, a number of them were uh, African Americans, so. All right, listen, we have a hard break coming up. You know, when I hear stories like that, I have to tell you that I find them uh, embarrassing. Just, I, 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 you know, uh, and I'm sure our entire audience does. We're glad you tuned in today. We know you have many choices, and we're grateful you chose to join us. We love your feedback, so please join me on Facebook. And or drop me an email at Eldon, that's E-L-D-O-N, at EldonTaylor.com. I love sharing your letters and comments on the show, and that's a great way for you to participate. We'll be right back following this short break. You're listening to Provocative Enlightenment with Eldon Taylor. A silent battle has been raging for the territory of your mind. Like a virulent virus, the effects are spreading. In Gotcha, Eldon Taylor explores the 24-7 bombardment of information designed to manage your thinking. He demonstrates how new sound bites are championed into personal awareness, becoming memes of the culture. And this results in framing and reframing classical positions, causing adjustments to personal values and history itself. Your every decision process is being managed and manipulated. Gotcha exposes the arrival of the Orwellian age in full-blown technicolor. In laying bare the current uses of the many sophisticated techniques, Eldon reveals what it is we need to do in order to avoid allowing others to puppet our thoughts. For details, go to eldentaylor.com backslash gotcha. Hi, I'm Eldon Taylor, and you're listening to Provocative Enlightenment Radio. I'm so glad you could join me as we tackle those tough questions in search of the answers that really matter. But remember, this is a journey we are undertaking together, so I would love to hear your thoughts as well. Please send your comments to Eldon, that's E-L-D-O-N, at EldonTaylor.com. You can also join in the conversation by... Joining me on Facebook at Dr. Eldon Taylor, that's D-R-E-L-D-O-N-T-A-Y-L-O-R. Now, back to the show. Hey, 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 what's up, man? Brother, what's up? Hey, how you doing? Get 
Welcome back. We've been chatting with Dr. Jay Richards about his research and new book, Silhouette of Virtue. In this half hour, we will take your call. So if you have questions, give us a call or advance your comments and questions in our chat room. And remember, I love your feedback, and a great place for that is on Facebook. So I invite you to join me there today. All right, Dr. Richards, we just played your third musical choice, What's Going On by Marvin Gaye. Why this one, sir? Oh, well, I, I just love Marvin Gaye's music. I think it's beautiful uh, music. And it was written in the, in the 70s, that piece, uh, trying to sum up what was going on in the society and, and, and to help people raise their awareness and uh, do that through conversation, to talking to each other. Uh, sadly enough, Marvin Gaye, is one of these tragic things, he, you know, he was uh, shot to death by his father, uh, struggled do with money they were sort of imaginary actually uh and here was a man who was obsessed in many ways with with sexuality uh Marvin Gaye obsessed with spirituality and a very angry man who went through extreme depression but was still able to create these things that I think of lasting beauty that really enrich many people's life uh, speaking of enrichment I, I don't know if your guests often say this but your messages during the breaks are so edifying and informative and enlightening. I mean, the, the teaching company, I mean, this has been a part of my journey is, is, is you know, a PhD or not, I'm, I'm, I'm buying those teaching company uh, <laughs> lectures and I'm going through the work and they're, they're, they have some courses on meditation and, and mindfulness. Uh, I, w- I went through the lectures on Emerson, um, just just wanted to say this. It's great that you're messaging those things during oh. your break. Well, thank you. I mean, I have to be one of their best customers. And very often, our guests I meet through the teaching company. Not in person, per se, but take Jay Garfield. I, I did Jay's course on the meaning of life. Incredible course. Highly recommend it. Uh, I reached out to him. He was in Singapore. Got him in the middle of the night. And he was game to come onto the show, even though our show live was 3 a.m. in the morning for him. Oh, wow. Uh, You know, great, great mentors they are. It is a great, great company. I do. I appreciate the compliment. Thank you, sir. Picking up from where we were, I I recently posted a pro-police poster on my Facebook page. And a number of friends and fans jumped on this post to express their outrage with police. I understand a lot of that. Some of them unfriended me. When I reviewed the comments on both sides of the aisle, I noted that those who opposed the post were without exception liberal in their political views, at least according to their post. Do you think there is a correspondent going on here? I understand that, you know, correlation is not causation, but is there some correspondence going on between the affiliation, the the idea of liberalism, 
um, and it's alienation from a law enforcement community? Uh, yeah, I, I, do, I think there is. I, you know, George Lakoff has talked about the political mind. A psychologist has talked about that. And he sees two great mindsets. Um, one is, is sort of mother nurturance-oriented, uh, and that's the liberal orientation. And the other is sort of father uh, order and authority-oriented, uh, and, and that's the more conservative position. And it's true that uh, if you see liberalism in its immaturity, it's basically a way of saying, Daddy, you're mean and you're wrong. <laughs> and and uh, the, the conservative position is more like saying, i got to get a hold of these kids and get them under control so for their own good and safety. And, and the, 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 these are the immature, you know, like most basic expressions of these mindsets. But I do think that there's a tendency towards a liberal mindset to be doubtful about law enforcement. And our country is founded on it. It's founded on this idea that if, if you give King George all the power and you give him, uh, you know, uh, the only means to arms, that, you get, you, that the trouble will ensue and will reduce our liberty. Um, so I think that, that that liberal tradition, you know, we, we forget that, that that was considered a liberal tradition, you know, people saying the king shouldn't be in charge. Well, these things change over time. You know, it's no longer mm-hmm. the liberal position that that we don't need kings. Some <laughs> <laughs> of our conservatives agree with that, too. But I do think you, your observation is correct. Do you think the militarization of our law enforcement adds to this, uh, well, I, I won't call it paranoia, but suspicion? Oh, I think it does. I mean, the Ferguson uh, situation exactly, you know, uh, makes a, a huge statement about it when you know your your public people out there protesting over a meaningful event, whatever, however one interprets it, and then they bring out tanks, you know, right. weapons that should be you know maybe in Iraq and uh, but, but it makes you and, think of Tiananmen Square and you know events like that, doesn't it? Yeah, it's a provocation. You know, it's a provocation, and luckily, you know, not everyone takes up the provocation. Um, but, yeah, I think that that's uh, – and a lot of that has to do, I think, with consolidation of power for the, the elites who were in, in power. Uh, and, and we know that law enforcement, uh, like any other organization, uh, you know, like like church, churches or Planned Parenthood, they're going to try to expand their budget. That's what they – that's what organizations do. They preserve themselves and they try to expand the budget because they believe in their mission. They need more money. They need more resources. Um, but I think you need restraints on them. You know, this is um, this why I really think that we've lost some restraint, some restraining anchors in society. You know, when corporations were first invented, they had to get a charter from the king or queen. Right. And the charter would say, you can only go this far. You can only do these things. Make all the money you want in these parameters, but no further. Um, and that's not quite what our companies are chartered for now. They're, they're, they're really set up more like psychopaths to, to do <laughs> It, by any means necessary, make a buck. And and so that philosophy sort of I think it's filtered throughout our society. And we end up with some 80-odd families with 90, 95% of the wealth in the world. And if you don't think that has an impact on every single one of us, you're just out to lunch, in my view. So, let me ask this. What are your thoughts on Starbucks' recent move to encourage customers to discuss race? 
I really, I, I like it. I, I, I thought it was uh, courageous. Uh, I thought it was noble. Um, it was, I think it was part of their openness to experience. You know, Starbucks is about openness to experience, like new coffee, new tea, uh, new, new friends, new environments, new music. And so new conversations is just part of the openness and, and uh, savoring of life that they're, that, that they're devoted to. I think for a while it was being interpreted that they were encouraging the customers to engage the barista in these talks. And I, I think that wasn't true because they want the barista to be putting out the coffee, not to be, you know, <laughs> having these conversations. Um, I, don't, I don't think they were doing that. But by putting that those those questions on their cups, they were saying, this is part of your daily life, like your cup of coffee. Why can't you talk about it? Um, I don't think they were calling for confrontation, although it is true. Many people don't know how to talk about race except for in confrontational terms. And part of it is the, uh, you know, anger and pain. And, you know, even our discussion here, you've heard, heard anger and pain in my voice is talking about these life experiences. Um, yeah. and I, I think for whites who feel that they've been misunderstood, that their, um, opportunities and expectations have been reduced because of changes having to do with race, um, they have, strong feelings about this too and, and so there's there is sort of a a, a racial resentment in, in many uh, in white america uh, that is sort of built i think you see people like donald trump who, who can you know capitalize on that uh, although you know trump will capitalize on anything you know <laughs> so he also is he's also a great uh, you know uh, person for sending money to the best of charities um so i i think that 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 that, that uh, whole Starbucks, uh, you know, attempt was noble, and, and I'd actually like to see more well-placed companies do it as sensitively as they as can be done. All right, before I go to the phones or take questions out of the chat room, I, you know, in the beginning I said there were three things we like to know. You know, who's the messenger, what is the message, and, of course, how do we use it? When you say what you're saying, you know, um, I responded earlier before the break feeling guilty about what you were explaining happened. I, I, I must have felt guilty because I was feeling embarrassed that, you know, your father would have been treated that way, that the psychiatrist would have been treated that way, um, and, and so forth. So, you know, let's just assume that I might be somewhat typical of white America. Uh, first part of this question is, you know, would you say that African Americans blame me for what was done by other white people to your father as a case in point? Do you harbor that? And the second would be, you know, how could I, how could I contribute to improving the, the race relations? How could anyone listening to this show actually contribute to improving race relations? Well, uh, you know, your first question was about would African Americans in general blame you? And I would say no. Uh, I don't think that most people, white people, are going around with a chip on their shoulder about every white person they see and seeing in them the image of the past and these, these previous experiences. Um, 
there are some people, of course, who have been so injured or just or immature for whatever reason, they are that way, African American or other. Um, so it's certainly not uh, a rare thing, but I don't think it's generally the rule at all. I think that what most Black Americans are aware of is that whites walk from day to day with a advantage of white of the white superiority system and that they don't have those advantages. And I think if they're not aware of that, they're sort of in denial. Um, I was recently uh, participating in a documentary, and I, I brought this idea of, of, of white superiority, and uh, the person I was interviewing said, well, uh, I, I, he says, I agree, it's white superiority, not racism, the problem. He says, but white superiority is a, a mindset. And I said, oh, no, I, you're not understanding me. White superiority is a system. Because I don't believe you believe that you're superior because you're white. But the minute you walk out of this room, our fates are different. The way we'll be responded to are different. And I think that's what African Americans are aware of. And I think they do get angry when they're when that's denied. Um, that uh, you know that everybody's fate is equal. Um, that everybody's treatment is equal based on race. When that's that is proposed as just being absolutely true. It's it's seen as with disbelief, and and people who say it are seen as being disingenuous, just just not honest or in denial. Um, I should say that when we talked about the past, for example, slavery, we have a technology it's called accounting to find out who got most of the money from slavery and where are the profits now. We know how to do this. You couldn't trace every dollar, but you can trace the vast bulk of the money. Uh, Brown University, for example, uh, largely funded on slave money, um, can easily track where that money came from. So uh, the idea that these are amorphous, that, that, that uh, the advantage, the exploitation um, uh, is, is somehow way in the past, it's not true. We can't do accounting about what happened you know, in the Roman Empire, you know, with specific groups, uh, might be able to do a little bit. But the slavery period is modern enough. They, they had to develop accounting even further to perpetuate the, the, the slavery system. Um, I bring that up only to say that we're not using the basic tools that we have around, basic knowledge we have, and still we sort of persist in a denial. And I think blacks, uh, uh, to the extent that, we try to make white people feel guilty. We're probably even further helping people feel disempowered to use the knowledge and technology we have to address these problems. You know, the, people feel guilty. They want to avoid this subject. Um, but you don't want to be around people who are trying to make you feel guilty or have a, have a clear-headed conversation with them. Uh, so I, I think there is something about the, uh, the emotional uh, etiquette of these discussions that has to be observed. All right. I'm going to have to go to the chat room phone lines here uh, as opposed to dominate all of your time. Richard would like to know this. Dominate. That's not the word I meant. <laughs> you understand that. Jeez. Knowing the suffering the victims have endured, how do you react emotionally to the perpetrators you deal with? Well, that's a great question. I mean, it's, it's, it's sometimes very, very hard, and, and uh, especially when there's been a murder, because life tends to side with life. 
Now, what I mean by that is the yeah. person in front of you is still alive. And over the years, I used to uh, sit on a parole board, and we would see people year after year. And the first time you heard about their crime, you'd be so outraged. You only sympathized with the victim. And year by year went by, and you realized this person is a living being that we are responsible for. He has a life. You know, he has potential. And you end up siding with life. Um, but... Uh, so often you have to bring the victim into the room. In other words, not literally. You have to conjure up uh, the image of the victim so that you can assess how did this offender respond. Uh, you know, I, I, I ask questions like, "Did you? Uh, what emotion did you see on the victim's face? How did their voice sound? Um and it, it's, that's difficult for both me and the offender. Sometimes the offenders will break down when they're asked to do that. Others are so cold they'll say, oh, I, I wasn't looking at her face because I was too busy raping her. I have no idea what she looked like. I, I don't remember. I don't know she was screaming. So, you know, you have these very different range of, you know, uh, offenders and, and, and their emotional makeup. Um, but it, it's uh, it's a difficult thing. It is good to know that at the end of the day, um, those people that I see for the most part are going to be under some restraint. Either they're in a facility or they're under close supervision, you know, where people are watching their movements and making total line. And so I feel a little bit more secure uh, about that. And I have had situations where someone I'm assessing ends up in front of my house, watching my house or his car. Um, that's not very comforting. <laughs> no. But like no. any business, it's, it's good to feel that you can draw uh, some sort of barrier between your work and your personal life. All right. Next question. Harper Lee's latest book, Go Set a Watchman, tells a different kind of story. How, how do you receive this book? You know, I don't know the book, so I haven't read it. You so haven't? I, I, no, so I really shouldn't comment on it. Okay, then we'll just move right on along. Uh, next question. Does the association of the black face with violence have anything to do with the amount of violence in the black community? I think this question's about black on black, so I'm not sure that that would do. But what what is behind? What drives the black on black violence, doctor? Well, people are violent against the people that are nearby. They're close to. Um, so, just like people marry the people they live by, or they go to, or they go to work with, or go to school or church with. So, you know, most of these intimate contacts happen to people who are just around you. Um, so, it is true that most uh, violence that blacks commit is against other blacks. Um, slightly higher percent of violence against whites by blacks. Um, so there is something going on there. Probably that might have something to do with money. It might have something to do with uh, money-motivated crimes. And it might have something to do with, with racial resentments. Um, I have seen a few, you know, work with a few people where their crime was, African-Americans, where their crime was seemed to have a strong racial uh, component. Uh, but I think your question is at another level because I think there is something to acknowledge there. That like that statistic that in these studies, African-Americans, many prefer um, uh, whites, and uh, also many African-Americans have the same association to violence. 
that there's also a, a self-loathing. You know, I, I heard one of your messages was about self-talk. And uh, James Baldwin had a great, you know, a, a revealing thing. He was walking down the street one day, and he's looking, uh, you know, the shop windows, and he sees his own reflection, and he noticed what his immediate thought was, was, there's a Negro. <laughs> In other words, he saw himself as the alien, different, identified by his race, rather than, well, that's just my image. That's me. So there is this, this doubleness in uh, black life around dealing with the black body and person as constructed in the society and dealing with your own internal reality and, and to the extent that you control it, your own uh, you know, external reality as well. Um, right. So that doubleness, you know, it can lead to crime. It can lead to self-loathing. And, you know, this is well-documented. Uh, you know, the phrase self-loathing Jew is very well-known. That This is a, uh, a phenomenon that, that takes place because people who deal with huge amounts of discrimination um, uh, and unfairness, sometimes um, they swallow the wrong pill. They, they swallow the pill that's saying that this is true. All right. We are just about out of time, Dr. Richards. I would like you to take a minute and tell everybody where they can learn more about you, where they can get your book. Uh, and we haven't talked enough about your book, but it is an outstanding read, and I highly recommend this book, Silhouette of Virtue. It's a novel, but it uh, it fleshes out very much of what we've been talking about today. So please, where can we learn more about you and get your book, Dr.? Um, the best way to find out about me and my book is at my website, um, at www.jrichardsbooks.com. And you're right, if you don't put the books in there, you'll get another J. Richards. <laughs> um, or look at my Psychology Today blog, which I have, called The Violent Mind, where I, I write about uh, violence in our society and the people who perpetrate that. I would say about my novel that I think the novel, I take the novel as a serious spiritual discipline, and I hope that's reflected in the novel. And I take the novel as a way of knowledge. It's a way of helping us get into the minds uh, and hearts of others by means of imagination. It's a great um, book. And I'm sorry, but we're out of time. Thank you for your work, Dr. Richards, and for your willingness to share it with us. We've come to the end of another episode of Provocative Enlightenment. I want to thank our guest once again and all of you for joining us today. I hope you enjoyed our show, and will join us again next week, same time and same place. And do tell your friends. Let's have them join us as well. Go get the book, Silhouette of Virtue. Okay, until next time, wherever you are in the world, remember, believing in yourself always matters. Provocative Enlightenment has been brought to you by Progressive Awareness Research and other sponsors. Provocative Enlightenment is a syndicated show and appears on other networks. For a schedule of showtimes, visit ProvocativeEnlightenment.com. If you're interested in becoming a sponsor, write to Eldon at EldonTaylor.com.